Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast. Podcast? The podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. But not here. Oh no, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 28th Patreon-only episode titled The Second Coming Part 1, an analysis of The Winds of Winter, The Forsaken, in which we prepare ourselves for Aaron Dampere's legendary Winds of Winter chapter by exploring all the groundwork that George R.R. R. Martin did for it. And boy, can you tell how excited I am for this episode? I am super psyched to be recording this episode with you, sir. Me too, me too. Obviously, The Forsaken is my favorite thing in the universe, and we're so <laughs> grateful to you, our patrons, for making this possible. We only kind of got the privilege to do this series of episodes because we got to 900 patrons, which is just amazing and awesome, and we're so humbled by that to get to that level, especially you know doing a podcast that it's not connected to a larger media organization or doesn't have anyone more famous than Jeff on it. No offense to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is very famous, but you know you know what I no, mean. A lot no, of podcasts who do real well t- tend to have a pipeline to a larger audience, and that's kind of why. And we, you know, didn't have that. We made this happen with you, and we're just we're so uh, grateful and so pleased to be doing that. So thank you so much. That's a great way of putting it, man. Like I, I feel like a lot of times, like we do these monthly episodes, and we do say like thank you to you guys every single month. But it really these episodes all become as a result of you guys supporting us, and it 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 not only makes us feel good, but it helps to make these episodes better our equipment better all of our like equipment is pretty much new in like the past 12 months or so so we really appreciate that and thank you guys very much for all of your support it really means a lot to us and we appreciate each and every one of you thank you if you subscribe to our patreon you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month if you subscribe for only five dollars a month or more our intent in doing these special patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter by chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly so here you will hear character deep dives backstory analysis theory discussions or in this or in this case a four-part exploration of one single chapter although as you can tell from uh, from jeff's announcement of the title this is not going to be actually dealing with the forsaken itself we're going to be dealing with some of the groundwork for it Mm-hmm. And in that light, our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsbury Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So the first question to ask is why? Why this episode? Why not just plunge into the Forsaken? Why are we starting with the groundwork for the Forsaken, the buildup? And it's it's in part just because The Forsaken is a really complex, dense chapter, and we may as well take our time and stretch out with it and really get into each little granular detail just for the fun of it. But it's also because the Ironborn storyline in A Feast for Crows, I think it's fair to say, is not super popular. And more than just not super popular, it's just not talked about very much relative to other portions of the story. And that, I think, is why when George read The Forsaken at Balticon 2016, it seemed to come out of nowhere for so many people and just be like a complete reorientation of you know, the entire story, or at least this chunk of the story. And it certainly was in terms of tone, but I think there are connections there. And part of what we want to do in this four-part series is highlight the connections that were there all along, putting a fragmented story told over many years into a single coherent frame. In order to do that, we have to talk about the Ironborn stuff in the early parts of the series and how George laid the seeds for what flowers in the Forsaken. But a lot of people look at the Ironborn story as probably the weakest part of George R. R. Martin's universe so far. Dorne also kind of gets put in there as well for reasons that are similar and a little bit different. We can, we will most likely talk about this at some point a year or two down the road. We'll see what ends up happening. So even for me, even after a few rereads, I struggle with the Ironborn chapters from A Feast for Crows, especially the, like those Kingsmoot chapters. And I did feel like they were kind of weak in terms of the overall story of A Song of Ice and Fire and perhaps comprised the weakest storyline in all of the series. And, and, I just to lay it out as Emmett like stares me down across from the screen. My struggle with these chapters was twofold. <laughs> the, you know, they felt. I forgive you in advance, the... sir. I know. I, I I appreciate your forgiveness. That, that's good. awesome. That's good. good I'm so that. glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they felt disconnected from the main narrative and didn't offer, I, in my opinion, a thoughtful reflection on the main themes of the story. The way that you know the Dorna chapters, which you got a reference before, did for me. Now, I really, really actually, in, in contrast to the Feast for Crows chapters, I really love all the Ironborn chapters in A Dance with Dragons because Dance with Dragons, best book. Ironborn chapters in Dance with Dragons, probably the best, my, my favorite so far chapters of in terms of the Ironborn, at least when I was reading these back in the early 2010s. But these chapters I felt were largely entangled with established storylines, mainly the Maronese and Northern plot lines, plot lines from that book. 
But then the Forsaken came about in 2016, and it really helped to refocus my evaluation of these Ironborn chapters from A Feast for Crows. It gave glimpses about all of the things that Euron was doing at the King's Mood and how it connected to all of the plots from Song of Ice and Fire. And more than that, it also connected like thematically to aspects of prophecy, real-world politics. It connected to aspects of religion versus atheism versus declaring yourself to be a god. All of these amazing aspects of the Ironborn storyline, which didn't really pop into my mind and pop into focus until The Forsaken came out. So knowing that The Forsaken was where those feast chapters, where those Ironborn feast chapters were pointing to has made me appreciate them all the more. So I read them, I read all those Ironborn chapters a week before we recorded them and actually read them just a few hours before we did it one more time in order to just kind of get a full sense of them. And man, I got to say, Emmett, they are really enjoyable and they're especially enjoyable knowing that they're now pushing the narrative towards the Forsaken and whatever the fuck is to come after the Forsaken. Really well said. And I definitely think they, they have an extra layer of enjoyability and just kind of comprehension when you come back from the Forsaken, knowing how they, they tie into the main storyline a little bit better. For me, what I part of what I loved about the Ironborn storyline of the Feast for Crows, reading it the first time through, was that I could kind of sense something like the Forsaken just out of the corner of my eye. Hmm. Not in the details, of course. George brought his own very particular writing you know, history to the game with that chapter. But as I, as I read those, and especially read the character of Euron, I got the sense, wait a minute, something weird is happening here, and it's not quite clear what it is. And I understand like that feeling frustrating for a lot of people. For me, maybe just because I love the kind of aesthetic and setting of the Ironborn story chapters in general. It's just kind of my jam. For me, it was like a really compelling mystery. And the Forsaken was when all the dots were really drawn together. And that that combination really enthused me. And I think even more than the content itself, it's that particular writing process of George drawing us along that I think makes these uh, chapters special. But I think if you really want to get a sense of that overall writing process, you have to talk about why the Ironborn are on the storyline at all. And this is something we've touched on a, a little bit in A Clash of Kings when we got into the Theon chapters, but we, we def- definitely wanted to refocus <laughs> our attention on it here. Yeah, I, I think that's those are all good points. And I think when we're looking at the Ironborn, it's easy to look at them as natural, planned, and well-constructed in George's part. We have the Forsaken anyways, and that's an amazing chapter. And you're like, oh, the entire narrative was building towards Forsaken all along, right? No, <laughs> not really, man. I mean, in my opinion, I think this is like a testament to Martin's skill as a writer in that it looks like it was just like planned, constructed, well-constructed, and just a natural orientation of the narrative towards the Forsaken or whatever follows thereafter. But that's not the case. Instead, George patchworked his way into an Ironborn plot through extensive rewrites and expansions on the backstory and lore. And this goes back to like even before the first book was published, so back in the mid-90s. And we can see this in how one of Martin's earliest plots was rewritten to be taken away from a certain character and rewritten to incorporate the Ironborn into the into the plot line. Namely, Tyrion besieging and burning Winterfell from the 1993 pitch letter, which we talked about extensively. We were talking about a Clash of Kings Theon won. That was then rewritten to Theon taking Winterfell by subterfuge and then Ramsay burning the castle thereafter. And originally, there were not going to be any Ironborn point of view chapters at all in the narrative. In fact, in the very early stages of A Song of Ice and Fire, so we're talking like before the publication of the first book, George didn't plan on using more POV characters beyond the ones he started the first book with. But then thereafterwards, Theon and Devos became POVs fairly early on in the process as a Clash of Kings. Theon one was actually included as this, this is interesting, was actually included as a sample chapter at the end of the paperback of at least the paperback version of A Game of Thrones, which was published in 1997. And my friend Jen Snow, who's one of my fellow moderators in the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, has indicated that this chapter was potentially published as a sample in the hardback version of A Game of Thrones in 1996. So the first Theon chapter was very early in the process of George writing A Clash of Kings, was likely written during the process of writing A Game of Thrones, the first book. So Theon's clash chapters then thereafter detailed the Ironborn invasion of the North, but they also seeded the backstory for Euron Greyjoy in particular. Meanwhile, there are other elements of the story which came into existence in the Clash of Kings that, in my opinion, dovetail with future pieces of the Ironborn storyline. Namely, Eurothon Nightwalker in Danny's fifth chapter in A Clash of Kings, who is a person who is Carthine, who has a an Ironborn nickname, or not Ironborn name, rather, who is most likely Euron Greyjoy in disguise. We'll talk about that when we get later in A Clash King's Danny's fifth chapter. And then, of course, the famous horn that John and Ghost find at the Fist of the First Men, which is very likely Joraman's horn, as opposed to just simply being a simple horn. 
Then transitioning to a storm of swords, we hear that Danny hears in Astapor about the so-called Corsair King who was attempting to buy 100 Unsullied in Astapor. And that figure was possibly, although in my opinion, likely Euron Greyjoy too. And then in A Feast for Crows in one of Ariane's chapters, I think it's the Soiled Knight, mention is made of the Corsair King raiding Tall Trees Town. And if the Corsair King is Euron Greyjoy, and again, I really think this guy is, that may be the reason why Euron Greyjoy has Summer Islanders with him as among his mutes when he shows up at Old Wick. Interesting also in a Storm Swords, so this is kind of something that I've been meditating on for a few years now, is that Balin is reported dead in Catelyn's fifth chapter in Storm, and we learn that Euron Crozaius returned to Pike and claimed the Seastone Chair. This also coincides with the ghost of High Heart prophetic dream of, quote, a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung on his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. Mention is also made by Stannis at the end of a Storm of Swords about the Ironmen fighting each other. So... What I think long scale, what, what George was doing here was that George had already planned for the Ironborn King's mood, although he probably didn't have the idea of the King's mood in mind, but he mostly had the idea of the Ironborn action occurring off page within, during the timeline of A Storm of Swords. And then George planned a five-year gap between A Storm of Swords and A Dance of Dragons. And I think that the off-page plotting that George had done in A Storm of Swords would have paid off after the gap with the rise of Euron Greyjoy as this major villain. I think that Euron was always planned to be a villain, at least from the early conceptions of A Clash of Kings. George ended up abandoning the five-year gap about a year into writing it, so he had to do a massive rewrite of his material. And shortly into this rewrite, George R. R. Martin decided to write a mega prologue for what was then a dance, what was then a feast for crows, in which he planned to have all of the Dornish and Ironborn chapters, minus Theon's chapters, which ended up in a Dance of Dragons, open a feast for crows. But then a year after doing this, in 2002, 2003-ish, George ended up abandoning the mega prologue and decided to sprinkle all of the Dornish and Ironborn POVs throughout a feast for crows. And the question is for a lot of people as to why George abandoned the mega prologue. And I think he did this for reasons that um, it's not 100% confirmed, but my theory is that George would decide to promote these prologue point of views into main point of views because he realized that he could tell a fuller, richer story by expanding their origin story and just making them actual point of views that he can like write more material against. And then late in the process of writing A Dance of Dragons, circa 2010-2011, George wrote several Ironborn chapters from Victorian Asha and Aaron Dampere's perspective, namely The Forsaken. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about The Forsaken next month and the process by which George took to create this chapter, the little that we know. We do know a little bit about it. But for now, just know that a lot of these chapters came late in the process of writing A Dance of Dragons to me, and it signals that George R. R. Martin was really trying to emphasize and reorient the story in a very specific direction, namely a Euron-centric one. So that's all of the meta history that I've been able to uncover so far behind how the Ironborn became so prominent in A Song of Ice and Fire. I do have an essay which is going to get into the nitty gritty, which I know some of you guys like a lot. I don't know why you're fucking weird, just like me. But it's called Sewing the Greyjoys into A Song of Ice and Fire with probably a subtitle, which I'll figure out at some point later down the road because I've not quite finished the essays we're recording this, this episode, which you can find at warspoliticsoficefire.wordpress.com. And now that we have the meta aspect of the Ironborn covered, let's talk about the Iron plot found in these books. Because, man, as much as this plot wasn't originally conceived by George R. R. Martin, it is among the most satisfying plots in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, especially at least Theon and Asha's perspective. And now coming back to it, yes, the King's Mood chapters for A Feast of Crows, also quite satisfying. <laughs> So glad to have you on Team Kingsmood, sir. Welcome aboard. <laughs> yo ho, yo ho. Anywho. <laughs> so yes, the books. The Ironborn material we get in A Clash of Kings is mostly focused on the character arc of our POV Theon Greyjoy. And as you said, plot elements for his storyline have been hastily retrofitted for him after having originally been intended for Tyrion's story. Theon is an outsider, desperately pretending to be an insider. So we see Ironborn society and House Greyjoy within it as if behind a layer of glass, at a distance, through Theon's eyes. Aaron Dampere, the first Greyjoy we meet besides Theon, is merely a font of scowls and judgment in A Clash of Kings. He is a cultural gatekeeper who always finds his nephew Theon wanting. He's not a complex psychology in his own right. Theon cannot see past the surface to the hurting soul underneath, and there probably was no hurting soul underneath at that point. George probably wasn't thinking of the priest that way yet. There are, however, seeds being sown, despite House Greyjoy's words protesting otherwise, <laughs> that are relevant to the A Feast for Crows plot and the Forsaken, even though, as you say, George certainly hadn't had them all worked out in his head at this point. You have Balin sitting in his broken fortress on Pike, just lost in his head in the old red tales that tell him how he's supposed to be, completely at odds with mortality and the reality of his last rebellion. 
The old way as a whole is framed quite clearly in A Clash of Kings, as we discussed in our most recent Theon, chapter Theon 3, as this delusional fairy tale the Ironborn tell themselves about themselves to justify and ennoble their cowardly raping, robbing, and murdering. And of course, we hear whispers of a Greyjoy not present, the maddest of them all. Theon looks around for his uncle Euron and his ship, the Silence, and is very glad he's not in port. Asha says she's heard terrible whispers of Uncle Crow's eye. And these whispers continue in a storm of swords when Balin dies and the struggle of a feast for crows is born. In the same breath that Catelyn learns that Balin Greyjoy is dead. We also learn he's been replaced by Euron, this black a pirate who ever raised a sail, who has a crew of mutes and has been to a shy and back. We hear all these terrible whispers, this terrible reputation of Euron. Even though it's all at a distance. Again, just like Theon's POV was at a distance, George is gradually getting us closer to the heart of it, the truth of the Ironborn, which, as you say, he's making up as he goes, but he has to pretend, no, 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 that truth was always Euron and always there. Mm-hmm, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he has to make it seem this way, and he does a very good job. So before George returns to the Iron Islands at length in a Feast for Crows to actually show us this stuff, he has set up from afar this ideology crumbling from within and without, and he has set up the villain trying to take advantage of that. Yeah, and you bring this up really, really well in the three Theon chapters we've done so far that era. And if you guys are listening like months down the road, we probably have already been through a Clash Kings Theon's chapters, but it'll be several years before we get to Theon's chapters in in a, in a Dance of Dragons. All that's to say is is that, yeah, what's fun to look back on A Clash Kings and A Storm of Swords is that George is definitely setting up the Ironborn as the losers who are desperate for a chance to strike back and reclaim that old glory. One that doesn't transpire, and the conquest of the North results in only the most marginal of gains. The 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 ideology of the old way gets demonstrated as utterly used up. And and there's this idea, and and I've we've talked about this before in the main cast about history is written by the winners, which is something I generally dislike. It's really not very good historiography, but there is there is something to be said for the idea that history of ideology is written by winners. And it's far too sweeping of a statement, and there are lots of nuances. But in the real world, communism is largely regarded as failure because of events that transpired from 1989 onwards. For the Ironborn, the Balon old way was on display as a catastrophic failure, as Asha really brings up really strongly in the King, in her Kingsmoot speech. In her Kingsmoot speech, the North had not f- truly fallen to the Ironborn. Lots of their own men were dead. Balon's own son was now a captive of the Boltons and was being tortured by Ramsay. And the Northmen despised the Ironborn and were coming for them. And they were picking off their castles one by one, as we find out in A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons. But there's there's another aspect worth engaging with, and it's something we brought up about in our, in our episode about the Greyjoy Rebellion, that old Patreon episode we did a few months ago. The new way, which was popularized by Quelling Greyjoy and by his granddaughter Asha, was really not in vogue either. We talked about this in our episode covering Theon's first chapter. When Theon steps ashore at Lordsport, the sept that had been burned during Robert's Rebellion remained in ruins, meaning it had not been rebuilt. The new way was still absent from the Iron Islands. Though people like Quellen attempted to discourage the worst aspects of the old way, which is mostly taking of the salt wives and thraldom, (coughs) slavery, and attempted to reform the Ironborn culture, some of the old way practices, thralls, salt wives, plunder, and rape were still quite popular. Yeah, imagine that. And there are plenty of real-world parallels with portions of an ideology remaining powerful even after it's defeated militarily. The Reconstruction era south in the United States is perhaps the most striking parallel to the Ironborn. All of this to say is that with the death of Balan Greyjoy, the ideologies of the old and new ways really showing their asses, the atmosphere was right for a ideological hijacking by a certain older Greyjoy brother. Big brother, you know, as Dordoro would have it, and that's your own. <laughs> but you make, you, make, you make a really good point. It's not just that the old way has been, you know, shown to be a complete wreck in terms of uh, actual military success and history going against the, against the Greenland. It's that it's still popular on a cultural level. And that mm-hmm. two-fisted approach, that kind of way that the Ironborn are half in and half out, that's exactly what Euron needs. That's exactly what makes them so vulnerable. If the old way was strong, Euron wouldn't stand a chance. If the old way had been completely discredited, Euron wouldn't stand a chance. But because <laughs> there's this little room where people want to believe in the old way, but everyone who's been practicing it clearly is not up to snuff, that's what leaves, leaves Euron the, the hole to walk in and say, actually, that's going to be me. I can I can make this happen for you. And it's all set up for him so, so beautifully. So to get into A, a Feast for Crows proper, the A Feast for Crows Ironborn storyline, conveniently for our purposes, that storyline begins with the same POV as the Forsaken, namely Aaron Greyjoy, the Damp hair, priest and voice of the Drowned God. And that is no accident. Aaron is not exactly the protagonist of the Ironborn storyline, because one of the great conceits of that storyline is that Euron is the protagonist. This is just his rise to power being seen through the POVs of the people failing to stop him. 
But Aaron is our guiding hand. He grounds things. He's the keeper of the flame in terms of what this storyline is all about because Victoria intends to completely miss the point <laughs> and Asha is rapidly off on her own direction and isn't her storyline is not actually that much about her uncles. That's just where she starts from. Right from the start of The Prophet, Aaron's first chapter, George sets the mood perfectly. The Prophet was drowning men on Great Wick when they came to tell him that the king was dead. Death is the seed from which more death grows. Death is the backdrop and distraction from other death. This is the pattern of A Feast for Crows, the book named for Euron, and this is the nature of the status quo specifically on the Iron Islands. The, the, the drowning of men, the practice that is supposed to define and bind these holy isles together, really what it amounts to in practice is murder, which is emphasized <laughs> when one would-be drowned man starts to resist. He doesn't want to do it anymore, and Aaron just kills him. Sure, damp hair can bring them back. He has a perfect batting average. But that doesn't change the violent folly of the act itself. And while Aaron thinks he has his god's favor, I think what George wants the reader to conclude is that what he's actually doing is just performing CPR, and God is not here at all. Moreover, he can't bring Balon back. It's too late. Here is a death at last outside of his control. The collapse of what he calls one of his two mighty pillars, the other being his god and Euron is responsible. Euron is an agent of mortality, the entropy that drags down not only individuals, but, and this is crucial for the Forsaken, worldviews, identities, shadows on a wall that get whole people through the day. He takes them all. Having toppled one pillar before the book even starts, he then gleefully goes about toppling the other, Euron's god and the entire culture built around it. He is only able to get away with that, though, because, again, the old way is already rotting from the inside out before Euron gets there. And Aaron, our POV, is kind of the only one who doesn't seem to know it. That's one of the fun things about reading his POV chapters for me is that you're kind of locked in this cage with the one person who thinks the old way is working. And you see all these signs. It's like, oh, wait a minute. He's really the only one who thinks this way anymore. Like, you have the boy resisting his drowning. That's the first sign. Wait a minute. Zealotry didn't work. That, that ideology didn't keep that kid safe. And then there were the local nobles who come to break the news to him about Balin, the spars, who they were not drowned properly by Aaron's lights. He thinks about how they did, you know, the, the basic little, you know, ritual of a baptism. You drop the kid's head in a little bath of salt water. It's meaningless <laughs> as far as he's concerned. But as he admits internally, that's kind of the norm, actually. That's more and more common these days. That's what drowning means. And Aaron and his people are kind of more the fringe. When he consults the Good Brothers, the real authority in this part of the island, he finds a Greenland maester, basically in charge of the castle. And his technicalities about bloodshed are not well received when he hears about uh, how Euron drowned uh, Lord Botley in a cask of seawater. And, you know, th so th really Euron doesn't care about shedding ironborn blood. And Aaron says, well, but if he drowned in seawater, no blood was shed. And Lord Goodbrother and the Maester look at him like, are you, are you crazy? <laughs> Why are you talking about this technicality? And because the, for Aaron, the technicalities are all there is. The rule book of the old way is all there is. And that shows you how the old way is just so far removed from lived reality that they would look at a lord drowned in a barrel and go, well, technically, that's not bloodshed. All of this points to the Ironborn moving on from the old way, bit by bit, as it becomes clear that their promised rewards are just never going to come. And now, the king is dead. Balon, as Aaron thinks to himself in a worshipful tone, was the avatar of the old way. He was the drowned god's chosen one. And now he has been cast down by the storm god, a.k.a. Euron, who was named by George perhaps for Eurus, the wind from the east. And the question is, did the old way die with Balon? Aaron takes refuge at the end of the prophet in the oldest foundation stone of old way tra tradition, the king's moot, in which all the captains and kings come together to choose who shall rule the Iron Islands. Yet this very maneuver reveals the shell game hollowness of Aaron's politicized faith. He's pretending this is, you know, the oldest tradition. This is who we are at the very core. But wait a minute. Balin wasn't crowned by a king's moot. The only reason Balin was in charge is because the, the, the Targaryens put the Greyjoys in charge of the Iron <laughs> Islands. That's where he gets his power from. So this isn't the will of God. This is Aaron reaching for any refuge against his abuser, any wall he can find. And that's exactly how he found his god in the first place. That's what Aaron's whole religion is. It's all this wall he's built up around himself to keep him safe from Euron, and it's not working. 
And it makes Aaron just a fascinating point of view character in a way that I didn't fully understand when I first read his point of view chapters when I was going through the, the books back in 2012. And that I didn't see that beyond the surface level of what Aaron was doing and why Dampere was such a fanatic for the old way and such a fanatic for the drowned god. It's not necessarily that he, he is definitely a fanatic in some sense, but that is coming from a well of abuse that he suffered at the hands of Euron as a uh, as a young boy and a young man. And one of the joys of rereading this chapter this past week was seeing how Dampere is consistently seeking out the drowned god's voice. And he ends up hearing it. He, like literally, he, there are points in this in, the, in these chapters of Aaron's chapters where he's like, the drowned god is speaking directly into his brain. You're like, wow, that's amazing. But it's not actually the drowned god's voice. It's his own voice. And I, and I love this for two reasons. First is that Aaron is sanctifying common human evil through religion. This is something that we see over and over in real world history too. So the old way is a Hobbesian ideology where men do evil, brutal, and violent deeds and get rewarded for that with a place in the drowned god's watery halls. Man's innate selfishness and evil isn't actually selfish and evil. Oh no, no, no. The old way would make these evil acts holy. And that's really, really insidious. I mean, think about it. The vices of murder, rape, and slavery become virtues because the ground because the drowned God has ordained them. And this helps to explain why this shitty culture has survived for so long in the Iron Islands. And as, as I was saying before, there, there are real-world historical parallels. A twisting of religion, the idea of black Americans is descended from Noah's son, Ham, is also part of an ideology of why American slavery lasted for so long in the United States. There was a religious component to the practice which haloed this vice as a religious virtue. Secondly, the subconscious hubris it takes for Aaron to believe that the drowned god is communicating directly to him makes his fall that much more narratively satisfying, though not personally satisfying as we're going to talk about part two, three, and four of The Forsaken. It would be an easy route, I think, to have Aaron praying to the drowned god and having some sort of movement of the spirit, so to speak, which leads him to the revelation about holding a king's mood to select the next king of the Iron Islands. And that is how I, I think, and it's how I, I, I anyways feel, is that how religious people feel about God answering their prayers anyhow, that God is moving you to one direction, providing you answers, but it's not that God is directly speaking to you, because that's crazy talk. That doesn't actually happen, although there are, of course, different ideas about this in all religions across all of human history. Instead, George R. R. Martin has Aaron hearing the drowned God's voice directly, in his own head. He only hears this voice so clearly and so, so clearly because it's his own internal monologue and conversation with itself. Ultimately, to bring up another religious phrase, pride goeth before the fall, damp hair. It's so beautifully said. It's, it's like, of course, he so easily hears that voice. Of course, there's no obstacle because it's just him. If it was any other being, even a literal God, like there would be some, you know, some sort of psychic distortion, the way Patchface has to do with kind of only getting a glimpse of what he sees. But of course, Aaron just has, you know, gets an HDTV look at God's voice because it's his own. <laughs> but it's also just a great expression of loneliness. Like Aaron has just himself in there because that's all Euron left him with. And that's all Euron left Victarion with too. He's, he's done the classic abuser's trick where you isolate your victims even from each other and they don't communicate and they can't form bonds. And the old way has made that easier because the old way tells everyone, no, you don't cry. You don't have feelings. You're not hurt. You're not wounded. You're not confused. You're fine. And that means someone like Euron can just spread so easily because everyone's fine. So we couldn't possibly have raised a supervillain in our midst because we're fine and we're awesome. And we see that as soon as Euron shows up in the flesh. When Euron is introduced in Victarion's feast tent in The Iron Captain, Euron stakes his claim against his older brother not on the grounds of abuse because that would make him look weak. Nor does he do it on the grounds that Euron is sadistic and untrustworthy, even by old way standards. Because then it would look like, what, are you saying we shouldn't be violent? Are you saying we shouldn't go out and kill people? What, are you some kind of pussy? No. So the only argument Euron has to make is cultural. The only argument he could make is that Euron is not a godly man. And on one level, this is framed like a superficial objection, something for the reader to roll our eyes at. Because this feels like, oh, this is just an excuse Euron is using to talk about the only topic he likes, God. But at a deeper level... Aaron is articulating exactly what is so terrifying about Euron. He's not just an atheist. He is auditioning to be a god in his own right, to occupy the throne of light perched atop the universe that he believes currently sits empty. And that's when I think we need to get to the overall kind of pattern of what we're trying to do in this four-part series. And I think the overall pattern of what George has gradually stumbled upon with the Ironborn. That which is subtext in A Feast for Crows is made text in The Forsaken. That which Euron is merely alluding to early on, that which Aaron gestures at but cannot fully describe, it's going to come barreling through the fourth wall to sink its fangs into the reader's brain later on. 
Euron responds to Aaron's objections with a beautifully written monologue that manages to both expose his entire worldview and master plan, while also shielding them in just enough bullshit and plausible deniability that no one in the tent realizes what he's actually saying. Euron says that he has sat the Seastone chair, and no god has struck him down, because it's just a chair, like any other. He makes the same argument in The Forsaken regarding his murder of his brother Harlan. He did it, and then he waited around, he waited around to be punished for it. And he wasn't. Because men are meat, as far as he's concerned. Everything on Earth is exactly as it appears. It's a round ball of dirt upon which we are born for no reason, suffer, ask for succor, and die waiting for it. Euron has traveled the world and seen that all these gods, so different on the surface, are really the same thing, just projections of need into the void. Hear me, heal me, protect me, make me wealthy, make me beautiful, make me powerful, make me king of the Iron Islands. The faceless men have reached the same conclusion, and interpret this state of affairs thusly. There is only one god, and that god is death, because death is the one answer the void gives us. Death is the one answer to prayer, so that must be what god actually is. Euron has reached a slightly different interpretation. There is only one god, and that god is me. What all those people are ultimately praying for, he says, is to be protected from the silence, and that's why he named his ship that. Sure, the silence refers to his practice of cutting the tongues from his crew. That's the initial definition we're given. That's the initial explanation. But again, that's the surface. Just as the surface of A Feast for Crows gives way to the depths of the Forsaken, the real reason Euron named his ship the silence is in honor of the void where the gods should be. That's why he says to Aaron in the Forsaken, what awaits you? It's not the palace of the drowned god beneath the waves. No, no, no. Worms await you, Aaron. It's just death. People want to be protected from the revelation that the universe isn't even hostile, it's just indifferent. People want to believe. Euron has come to take away belief in anything, anything at all, other than himself as the new godhead. We see that already in the Forsaken among his followers who are talking to Euron about your god. Wait a minute, your god? When did you guys give up the drowned god? When did Euron become your god all of a sudden? And Euron is only able to get away with that because he so effectively disguises this harrowing journey into the abyss as an appeal to the very old way culture Aaron is trying to defend from him. Hence the eye patch, which he does not need. It's his pirate costume. It covers up the crow's eye, which is continually linked to his sorcerous apocalyptic side. It leaves open his smiling eye, the one that seduces his followers. And he does that by pretending that he's traveled so far and shed so much blood and deconstructed so many gods, all for the glory of the old way. His followers cheer because they never wonder if he would do the same thing to them. Mm, I love that. And I think like in rereading Asha and Victarion's feast chapters right before the King's Boot, it's really fun to see how these two characters are attempting to clown their way into a coalition large enough to sit the sea stone chair. But their visions are so, so small. Victarion and Asha, they embody the mentality among the Ironborn that Euron dismisses in the Reaver as, as his own people chanting for grapes when Euron would give them dragons. They're basically embodying traditional ways of thinking about Ironborn politics, old way versus new way. And Asha spends her entire chapter trying to convince her closest allies in Roger Carlaw and Tris Botley and specifically to support her in the King's Boot. Victoria, meanwhile, sails at Oldwick with the ideas that his numbers are too few to win the Driftwood crown, but if he demonstrates how Ironborn he is, he's going to win. But Euron, standing there, fucking high out of his mind, smiling, <laughs> alluding to the idea that he is a god, as you were saying. There's something, and I don't know if George intended this or not, but there's something almost cult-like about Euron's first appearance on page. All the Iron Men are just drinking themselves into a stupor in this feast hall, but then they go quiet when Euron and his mutes show up in the feasting tent. There's like a Jim Jones, David Koresh feel about him. He's magnetic. He has a grand vision when Ash and Victorian want more of what's already been had for the Ironborn. So it's fascinating that when Euron finally leaves... Asha attempts to broker a deal with Victorian to serve as Victorian's hand while he sits the sea stone chair and wears driftwood crown. But Victorian, being Victorian, thinks that Asha wants to sex her uncle. Classic Victorian, guys. Everyone laugh at him. Haha. <laughs> he ultimately, though, ends up rejecting this idea, this compromise. He rejects the coalition building that Asha attempts. Ultimately, though, the old way and the new way are irreconcilable, in my opinion. They can't be joined together, and compromise is a Greenlander folly to all of these ironborn. 
There are 2016 GOP primary <laughs> election parallels here. But guys, this is a family podcast, so I'm not going to get into those. We can talk about those on Twitter. Ultimately, Victarian's Iron Chapter opens with the wind blowing from the north, and Aaron's The Drowned Man Chapter, the start of the King's Boot Chapter, opens with damp hair in the sea, feeling the cold wash over him. Basically, George is signaling Euron's victory at the King's Boot before it's even achieved, and I fucking love that. Yeah, that's a great point. It's already over, and it's already over in part because Euron is so powerful and mysterious. He seems like part of the wind, part of the water, but it's also over before it starts just because their ideological failures make it a guarantee that it's going to go wrong. And yeah, I love the, that Asha makes this offer to Victorian, I'll be your hand. That's so representative of how Asha has these good intentions but isn't thinking things through. Like, a hand on the Iron Islands? Asha... That's not how they do things here. Like, that's a Theon mistake. Like, a complete failure to misread your people here. But Victarian, being old way Victarian, thinks, ah, woman, woman sex, yes, me? Like, that's that's his mindset. So between those two, like, of course, of course you guys couldn't get together. And of course you left things open to, to Euron. Who, yeah, absolutely, as you say, as a very cult-like, very kind of, uh, it's all about him, not really even his ideology. It's just like, I am the ultimate expression. You be like me, and that's how we're going to get where we're going. And it's very effective, specifically against his opponents, when we get to, get to the King's Moot. And yes, I love the King's Moot. For me, like, the King's Moot, you know, it's the fourth book out of hopefully seven, which is, you know, the middle book. The King's Moot's in the middle of the fourth book. I feel like this is the center of it all. Like, you could draw Song of Ice and Fire like a big circle map, and this is this is the center where everything is still. The King's Moot begins with Dampere giving himself to the sea, reassuring himself that the strength of his god means he need not fear the devil. He need not fear the crow's eye. His god will protect him. His culture will protect him. His King's Moot will protect him. He turns out to be wrong about all of that, which is the foundation of the Forsaken when he is left among the ruins and Euron comes stalking him. George frames the King's Moot as a microcosm of society, of the story so far, even the history of humanity in this world. It starts on such a small scale, an individual, lone man struggling onto shore from the sea, like like our ancestors, evolutionarily speaking, who struggled onto shore. That's what Aaron feels like in this moment. Color steals back into the world, like this is the first time color is coming to the world, as the people rise from sleep and the banners flap. They come together in Naga's bones where their civilization began. Those bones could be the building blocks of a castle. You could think of them as the trunks of weirwoods. It could be any of them. This setting stands in for all the story settings. This political struggle stands in for all the story struggles. The characters are pretty simple, but I think they're supposed to be archetypes. I think this is supposed to be like George saying, here, here's what the whole thing has been in its simplest, purest form. These factions have come together to pick a new leader, a new mighty pillar, just as Westeros had to do post-Robert and the Kalasar had to do post-Drogo. So why write the King's Moot this way? I think George is trying to communicate to the reader that, hey, I know you might not be super into the Ironborn, but this is not merely a subplot for secondary characters. I'm not wasting my time, I promise. This is the story writ small, which means how the King's Moot ends is going to have ramifications for how the whole story climaxes. Right. And I was thinking about this in terms of what happens in the first book, because I think that there's that George ended up constructing the King's Boots sort of as a inversion of the King of the North moment from the first book, from a Game of Thrones. Who shall be king among us? Joffrey or Gilbert Farwin? Stannis or Victarion? Renly or Asha? Or a radical new solution that's a callback to the old way in actuality? I mean, if you scratch the surface of a lot of the new plot lines, in quotation marks, from A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons, you're going to find that they aren't actually new. They're old plot lines wearing new colors. Time is a wheel. Very well said. Absolutely. It's the combination of change and constancy that, you know, some, some elements change and some don't. You put those together and you see how the story is evolving. And I love how the King's Moot works kind of structurally. It begins, the first candidate is Gilbert Farwin's Lord of the Lonely Light. He's clearly the flip side of the coin from Euron. He's got the mad eyes in common. He's got the sorceress background. The far winds are rumored to be able to skin change into whales. Gilbert has a wild plan to take everyone off sailing and leave Westeros, Westeros behind the same way Euron does. But Gilbert wants to sail west into paradise because west is where he's from, the west beyond the Iron Islands. Euron is the wind from the east and he wants to sail his people east into hell, Slaver's Bay being frequently and unsubtly compared to hell in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, the Ironborn dismiss Gilbert's plan as madness while they end up embracing Euron's, at least for a little while. What's the difference? Well, Gilbert's plan is kind of, you know, hippie-ish. It's kind of peaceful. It's all about going to Shangri-La and hanging out. It requires them to give up the old way. Euron's plan involves ramping up the old way to 11. And that is the core of his appeal. It's why he wins. 
Victarion promises to change nothing. All you'll get from me is more of what you got from Balon. But what they got from Balon was re failed rebellions, an endless parade of humiliation and death. Asha, meanwhile, is trying to move on from the old way entirely, but as you point out, there's not much of a constituency for that either. The Ironborn are caught in a political trap that, yeah, resonates with the real world, in that they know their self-image is nothing but a shadow on a wall, but they're still too in love with it to conceive of giving it up. Right. I mean, if you were, you brought up this great point, which I never saw before, but if Gilbert Farwin is the forebear to Euron, Eric, Ironma Eric Ironmaker works for Victarion with his dreams of past glories and conquests as the basis for his claim. And then Dunstan Drum works as a forebear for Asha. Eric speaks of, of the use of his Warhammer's anvil to crack skulls. He's so super fucking Ironborn, but he's also 88 years old. He's, and he can't even rise as Asha challenges him at the King's Boot to stand up. He can't. The old way of taking what's theirs by hammer and anvil or fire and blood can't stand on its own two feet. Meanwhile, Dunstan Drum attempts to defy the traditions of the Ironborn and stake a claim on his own, despite that it flies against tradition for someone who isn't a Greyjoy or one of the older houses to become the lord or king of the Iron Islands. Also, his gifts suck and he's taking too long and he ends up talking for like hours, it seems like, is what Damper makes it out to be. This is Asha attempting to buck historical Ironborn misogyny using her deeds and her not-so-great gifts to win her way to the Seastone Chair. Dunstan Drum and Eric Ironmaker lose out before Victarion and Asha stake claims, but their failures become Victarion and Asha's failures as they start to stake their own claims, mainly because the old and new ways are fairly empty and unpopular before Victarion and Asha even stake their own claims. That's a really brilliant point. I, you know, you have these six candidates and it's like these two sets of three that are kind of mirrors and reflecting each other. And that's, you know, that's just a fun structural game on George's part, but it's also reflecting how Victarion and Asha should have seen this coming. Like there were versions of themselves who went first and failed and they still went ahead with their ideologies. That's a great way of showing how they have failed to learn from the old and new way falling short before. They're just going to keep trying it. But if it didn't work for Eric Ironmaker and Dunstan Drum, why would it work for you two? So Euron improves on Gilbert Farwin, which is interesting to consider why. Because it is only temporary. Like the Ironborn do eventually reject Euron's plan to go east just as much as they do Gilbert's plan to go west. When you get to the Shield Islands, they're like, yeah, actually, no. <laughs> we don't want to go to Slaver's Bay. And what's interesting is what they want to do is go to the Arbor and eat a bunch of grapes. Which kind of sounds like what Gilbert offered them, right? Like, let's go sailing to a beautiful land and eat food forever. But what's the difference? Gilbert didn't say, let's go kill a bunch of people. Gilbert didn't say, let's go be badasses. And that's still what they want to do. So they go with the version of Gilbert's plan that lets them feel tough. And that's Euron's plan. This is precisely the political space that Euron needs. He can acknowledge the old ways failings while spinning those failings, not as a product of the ideology itself. Oh, it's just been the weak individuals trying to execute it. They all fell short. They failed. I will succeed. Just look at my resume. I've killed the most people. Once again, he talks about going all over the world, treading where most would dare not. He brought back Dragonbinder, the Horn of Hell, with, with which he means to steal dragons. All for the purpose of making the Iron Islands great again, or so he says. But Aaron knows better. And George drops clues into Euron's dialogue that his sets are sight higher. These clues that will pay off in the Forsaken, but are there for readers to pick up on. When he says during his big speech at the Kingsmith about how all Westeros is collapsing during the war, he says, a crow can espy death from afar. And I say that all of Westeros is dying. And that definitely reads differently coming back from the Forsaken, wondering if he might be talking about things on a more magical level, like, you know, the crows being able to spy things from afar and all of Westeros dying, not just a few people here in the Riverlands, a few people here in the Stormlands, no, everybody is dying. That sounds like he's talking about something different than just the war. And then he, he almost completely gives himself away at the end of his big speech when he says that his plan to steal dragons, surely that's worth a driftwood crown. That right there exposes his contempt for his own people. How this is all a performance and he's using them transactionally to get what he wants before abandoning them. Surely that is worth a driftwood crown. That's what he thinks of the crown. That's what he thinks of the Seastone chair. It's just a chair. That's what he thinks of you people. But no one picks up on it because they want to be him too badly. They just cheer his name. Aaron reaches inside for his god and finds only silence. The nothingness behind the stars that seems to prove Euron right. There was never anyone there, so it might as well be him. Again, that which is subtext here will become text in the Forsaken. 
His apocalyptic ambitions are made explicit later on. They are present but buried here. One of the big examples of that is how he introduces himself with Dragonbinder. Like, you have this political squabble, all these, like, would-be kings fighting each other. It's, yeah, I think it's a microcosm for the War of Five Kings. And then you have the three horn blasts interrupting it from Dragonbinder. And when you go up to the Night's Watch, what do they say three horn blasts signify? The arrival of the others, the arrival of winter. So you could say what we're seeing with the King's Mood is, here's the War of Five Kings, and then, oh shit, here's the magical side, here's the others interrupting it, and that's Euron. Definitely made me sit up when I realized what George and Euron were signaling with the three blasts of Dragonbinder. And it just really just kind of like struck me, not just when I was reading this time, it struck me before this time, but it really struck me again after coming back and then going right into reading The Forsaken thereafter. And I, and I talked about the hubris of Aaron earlier in this episode, and Euron definitely has an arrogance about himself, but it's 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 a bit different than Aaron's. I mean, where Aaron is self-deceiving himself into thinking that the voice he's hearing is the drowned gods, Euron is truly hearing the voice of the god. And additionally, something else is that you are indicating that a crow can espy death from afar. What is something that we think about, or what has been postulated about Euron, theorized about him rather, is that he has the presence and the ability to utilize a glass candle. So he can not only just has the ability to foresee the death that is, that is coming for Westeros in his own imagination, he is potentially seeing it actually through the glass candle itself. So pretty freaking fucking stuff there. I mean, the God of Death is also truly speaking through Euron. All of Westeros is dying is a frighteningly accurate take on the state of Westeros in the Feast for Crows or at the time of a Feast for Crows. The War of the Five Kings has left thousands, if not tens of thousands, dead. And the person who's sitting the Iron Throne right now is likely not going to hold it as more factions rise to try and knock him over. But Euron takes it a step farther. He believes in the God of Death because he himself is the God of Death, as you were pointing out and alluding to earlier. Euron is hearing God's voice because... It's his own voice, while Aaron is imagining that the drowned god speaks to him when it's also really his own voice. It's a fascinating paralleling in the narrative itself, and it's also really frightening, too. I think Damp Hair is kind of weird, and people look at him askance and be like, eh, this guy's a little bit out of his gourd. But people look at Euron, they're like, they identify with him. He, They identify with him. He has the ability to bring people in. He's the ability to hijack an ideology and let people think that he's actually one of them when he's truly not. And this really becomes, in my mind, it really becomes much more powerful and poignant when we get to the first actions of Euron Crozai in A Feast for Crows, namely the invasion of the Shield Islands. I love that comparison between Euron and Aaron because they're at opposite ends of the power spectrum you know, Aaron bears every wound he's ever taken clearly all over him. Euron looks like he hasn't aged a day. But really, they share the same delusion from completely different angles. But it's the same idea that the voice I hear in my head, my own voice bouncing off the walls of my skull is God. And that's a, that's a really interesting connection that they've come to this conclusion. And it's something that, that is going to become really relevant to the Forsaken, as we'll talk about in later episodes. But yes, as you say, before we get to the Forsaken, we get in, uh, in the Reaver, a Victorian second chapter of Feast for Crows, we get the beginning of Euron's invasion of Westeros. Euron and his followers set out to take over the world. They begin at the Shield Islands in the Reach, which Euron turns over to not his followers, but his rival's followers. Victarion thinks to himself that he's doing so to win their loyalty, and the reader kind of accepts that explanation in the moment. But once again, a deeper layer to Euron's actions will be revealed in The Forsaken. Having given his followers a taste of plunder, Euron then declares that they are setting out for Slaver's Bay to win over Danny and her dragons, like he said at the King's Moot. But Roderick, the reader, starts calling bullshit on Euron's plan and backstory, and suddenly, no one wants to go. Euron's blue eye starts to turn black, the smiling eye turning into the crow's eye, and he flees the room. Victorian is later called to attend his brother, and we get another monologue that lays out who Euron is and what his role in the story is to be, just under the surface. Euron says that when he was a child, he dreamed that he could fly, and that when he woke, he couldn't. Or so the maester said. But what if he lied? What if we can all fly if only we could leap from some tall tower? Euron's belief that he can fly, that he is destined to soar above mere mortals and become a god, was rooted in a childhood fantasy that reality has yet to match. He is like so many other characters in the Song of Ice and Fire in that regard, but Euron has been driven farther from humanity than any of the rest. He wants to climb a tall tower, a metaphor for power like the Ladder of Chaos. But the thing is, most people in the series who want to do that want to then sit atop said tower, said ladder. Euron wants to leap from the top of it. This is power as suicide. It's, it's, a, it's a harrowing, terrifying, and kind of 
oddly pathetic view of the world. Euron is so in love with power, he will destroy himself to get at it. Once more, the subtext holds the truth. What Euron is describing here is not merely a metaphor to capture his worldview. It's literally what happened to Bran Stark. He, he too had a dream that he could fly and was told by his maester when he woke up that he couldn't, but he knew at some level that he could. And this suggests that Euron might be one of the previous would-be messiahs upon whom Bloodraven experimented before he found the one true Bran. Perhaps Euron's third eye was opened by Bloodraven. I can't emphasize enough the potential importance of that revelation. It suggests that Bloodraven, Godhead, the Herb Mentor, opened the antagonist's third eye as well as the protagonist's. It's as if the White Walkers were given a seed to nurture south of the Wall, a prodigal son who would someday seek to return to them. It's an origin story that gives shape and structure to the rest of the free-floating dread surrounding Euron. This is why he's like this. This is where he came from. This is where he's going. You can see that all over his character. Why else call himself the Crow's Eye? Why else have that banner where crows are crowning his eye, except in honor of the crow who opened his eye? And I would argue that... The cosmic horror freakout of the Forsaken does come out of nowhere unless you keep this in mind. It makes sense if you put Euron's supervillain super villain origin story at the forefront of his story. It gives it all direction. It gives it all stakes. Victarion, our POV on this revelation, misses the point as usual. Euron even offers him Shade of the Evening, the warlock's psychedelic drug, to clear his vision, but Vic spits it out. Once again, the truth will wait for Tiwau because Aaron Dampier is not going to have a choice about drinking a shade of the evening. Euron dispatches Victarion eastward to bring back Danny, ensuring that Euron sticks around in Westeros for the Forsaken and beyond. The Reaver is a very busy chapter in which a lot of different things are happening at once. It's one of the more plot-heavy chapters in A Feast for Crows. So it is easy to overlook the absence of Aaron Damper. He seems to have wandered off. He says he's leading a rebellion, but no one knows where he is. I think it's a structuring absence. I think it's an important consideration. I think... Aaron's absence is what makes the Reaver what it is. Aaron's perspective is what's missing from that chapter and why none of the dots can be connected. If he was there, we might be able to see Euron for who he really is. Victarion might be able to see Euron for who he really is. But by the time he returned to Aaron Dampere and the Forsaken, Victarion is gone and it's too late. Oh man, he just freaks out when he finds out from Falia Flowers that Victarion is missing. He's no longer there to save him from his state that he's in. And it's just kind of a skin tingling moment in the narrative and, and i think like too when you're when you're looking at events from the reaver you get a you get a foretaste of what's coming in the forsaken because it's not just it, it's not just that the chapter is brutal it is absolutely brutal the reaver i think gives us a glimpse of a different kind of brutality and horror than previous chapters displayed and I think about this specifically in terms of what happens when Victarion sails back into the Shield Islands, when he's there at the feast and Lord Hewitt's daughters don't merely get raped by Euron's creatures. They're systematically humiliated, dehumanized by having to wait tables naked. And part of what makes Euron so terrifying is that this is Ramsay Bolton behavior. This is stuff we see in Theon's chapters in A Dance of Dragons. But it's not the disorganized sociopathy that's at work in Ramsay Bolton. It's organized serial killing. Euron knows what he's doing. This isn't merely sport for him. It's a laugh out loud, nothing matters. So now I'm going to brutalize you and do what I want for all of eternity. Euron is the god of death and he will play with you until your batteries run out and then you'll die when he wants you to die. And, you know, that's something that's really kind of different from the narrative. I mean, I mean, when we read Theon's chapters in A Dance of Dragons, they are there are aspects of those chapters which just make you really kind of almost want to retch when you're reading what, what's happened to Theon, what Ramsay is still doing to him, and how Ramsay interacts with all of the living people around him. But there's something just utterly just terrifying about the way that Euron does this in the Reaver and really brings it to the fore in the Forsaken. And I think for a, for the longest time, the majority of fans thought that Aaron was on Old Wick, rallying the anti-Euron houses together. At least I thought as much. And this turned out not to be the case, as George had something more interesting planned for Aaron. And part of my enjoyment of those dance Ironborn chapters is how they went sideways on the characters in question, with Victorian getting shit on by monkeys and Asha receiving her version of Stannis. So it's completely within the mold for Aaron Greyjoy to not actually be on Old Wick as what Victorian thinks in this chapter, leading a last ditch, leading a last ditch attempt to unseat Euron. Anyways, all of what we're summing up is why I learned to love the material you were writing about Euron and Bran back in the 2016-2017 era. So 
thank you down thank you for this trip down nostalgia lane it's really a lot of fun <laughs> but to get to your point this is why the forsaken is such a powerful chapter it utterly refocuses our opinion about these ironborn feast chapters i i, I thought that euron was kind of crazy like a fox kind of a foolish guy who had happenstances way into gaining a dragon or creating chaos for the narrative to progress on but now with the forsaken in hand at some level it shows us that euron unlike the cylons has a plan and it's fucking horrifying <laughs> It sure is, and we're going to be getting all into the details of Euron's master plan as it's revealed in horrifying fragments in The Forsaken itself in our next couple episodes over the next couple months. But to close out this episode on the build-up to The Forsaken, we thought we'd talk a little bit about how Game of Thrones adapted the Ironborn storyline, because of course they really didn't get into anything resembling The Forsaken. It's mostly relevant in terms of how they adapted the stuff we were talking about in this episode, Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows. So overall, Jeff, how do you think Game of Thrones handled the uh, Ironborn storyline? I I think when you look back at earlier seasons, season one and season two, I think they did a generally pretty decent job with Theon Greyjoy and with Yara in, in the form because they couldn't have Asha because it, it apparently sounded too close to Osha, the the wildling woman who was in Winterfell. So I, I thought that Theon stuff from the first two seasons was some of the strongest stuff there, especially in season two where there was some kind of weak material. I thought that Theon's storyline was very good. I thought the music was also especially good. The Ironborn motifs that uh, Ramin Jawadi used were really good. I actually sometimes listen to those when I'm trying to do some writing and stuff like that because they do just have this do 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 do. It's just ah so good ah it just makes ah it just my, makes my skin tingle in a, in a good way as opposed to this year on stuff which makes me tingle in a bad way. I think I think though when we get to like the, the the Theon stuff from seasons three and four, it's it's less good. I think some of the torture stuff that we get from Ramsay was a bit over done and was just a bit sensationalized and almost made it kind of pornified if that's a if that's fair so to speak but i think like where, where i think we should probably focus most of all is like how they adapted storylines such as the king's mood and euron Greyjoy in particular because these this storyline kind of came out of not out of nowhere necessarily because they we had the books in hand but they did come rather late and they ended up kind of rejiggering the timeline for it so they had the king's mood happen after asha had freed theon and they were both on uh, old wick itself i guess old wick you can't really be sure about some of these later seasons about all the uh the world putting they were doing there it wasn't necessarily all that good um but I, i'll turn it over to you because one of the things i, I one of the things I, I first got introduced to you is was through tumblr but i also know that back in the day season six and season seven you were writing for deadspin and you had a lot of interesting thoughts about euron Greyjoy in particular which i I didn't actually agree with altogether, but I thought they were interesting thoughts all the same. So I figured I would turn it over to you to talk about how the show adapted a character like Euron Greyjoy and whether you're satisfied with how the King's Mood and Euron came about in season six and season seven. I very much enjoyed Euron's introduction on the show in season six, episode two, uh, Home, when uh, this was uh, after Theon had just escaped and was heading home to the Iron Islands. And his father, Balin, was killed off the, on the rope bridge on Pike during a stormy night by his brother, Euron, who had returned. It was a really spooky, atmospheric scene. Euron was speaking some, you know, terrifying lines from the book, and the bridge was swaying. And I thought it was appropriate that he killed Balin personally, not what happened in the books. He killed, uh, hired the Faithless Men to do it. But visually, in terms of introducing the character, I thought it made perfect sense. And he looked like he was being set up as like, you know, a big, important new villain with some spooky, potentially magical background going on with the storm and talking about where everything he'd been. And then they immediately turned him into a punchline. And that was such, that sounds like such a weird choice to me in terms of trying to do two things at once with a character that they never quite seemed to have a handle on or why he was particularly in the show at all. And you know, I, I don't want to be, me to be gl- glib or flippant about it. I think it's just a product of adapting uh, one of these secondary subplots of A Song of Ice and Fire. And the reason this exists is really is very specific structural import, you know, filtered through Euron. And I think if you take that away, and I understand why they did that, I think Cosmic Horror Euron was never on the, the, the ballot for the show, as I've said before many times. So sad, but I think just a, a necessary reality of just kind of the the you know, just the tone and register they were working in. But if you take that away, there really is no reason to have the Ironborn at all other than Theon after season two. There really just isn't. That They are just dead weight at that point. In the same way that if you don't, if you're not going to intricately connect Dorne to the Daenerys and Cersei, King's Landing, Targaryen stuff, just don't have Dorne. Like, I, you know, I love the, a couple of those characters on their own merits, but that really is why they're there. And that really is where the revelation and emotion comes from. And I think you could tell that there was just some dithering going on with the Ironborn stuff, specifically surrounding the King's Moot, 
which you know it, it was never going to be this you know the beautiful intricate thing i love from the books where it just is a wonderful mirror ball that reflects all aspects of the story but it 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 had one of the this this nagging thing i really disliked in the later seasons where a character would do something really blunt and obvious and then say, well, yeah, that's the point. We need to do things and be blunt and obvious now. Like when Ramsay kills Roos or when the Sand Snakes take over Dorne or when Euron just says, yeah, I killed Balin at the King's Moot. And they like they try to make it be like, oh, yeah, that's refreshing and new. Just doing stupid stuff and saying I did it. When what it really is, is just lazy writing that's not as nearly intricate or complex as the power plays being pulled in earlier seasons when they were trying from the books. The politics of season six is is just really boring, and it's just very thing happens, then the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, and nothing is unexpected. Like, what's the big political twist in, like, later seasons is, like, the Littlefinger stuff at Winterfell in season seven, which everyone agrees is garbage. So I think that that really slowed down the Iron Islands, but even after season six, I was just curious to see what purpose they had for Euron, and it unfortunately was mostly just keeping Cersei around, giving giving an excuse for Cersei to still be on the on the on the on the, the game board. It produced some you know, there was the fun sea battle in season seven against the Sand Sinks, which is kind of a hoot to see him out there, you know, just hollering and causing causing chaos. Very, very kind of kind of fun at a at a just kind of a relaxed, uh, jocular, uh, sarcastic kind of level, and that's that's totally fine. It's it's at at that point I began to appreciate Euron Moore is just completely divorced from anything resembling his character in the books. Although I was still left with the question of basically why he's here at all, especially when you get the season eight and it's like he and the Golden Company, you know, they're not even putting up a fight when Danny shows up at the end. Why are these people here? Why are they in the show? So that 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 felt like a case to me, as with Dorne, of like, oh, they're in they're in the books, they're around for a while, so we'll do something with them. Oh shit, we didn't figure out what to do. I think there was competing ideologies in the writing room, which is, should we? How close should we stay to the books versus how much should we be pushing the narrative forward? Because we have these end states, which George told us about, but we also have these plot lines in in play. But we're not going to go down that road. But we also kind of want to have them sort of resemble events from the from the, from the books. So we're going to end up just kind of doing both at the same time. I, I, I was thinking, so I just rewatched the the the, the sea battle scene from uh, from season seven, which is I think is actually a very fun scene. It didn't feel particularly like momentous necessarily, but there was there was a moment there at the very end where after Theon jumps into the water and you have two of the sand snakes, one is hanging off of the prow of the silence, the other is staked to the silence. And I'm like, wow, this is like you're on from the books here. Just for a flash, just for one moment, you see this kind of utterly nihilistic god of death figure that is there and is willing to do something that is just visually just horrifying but yet just makes a lot of sense to who the character is and then they immediately undercut that by having the Euron going to fuck Cersei storyline which is a big part of what becomes season eight and the dynamic between him and Jamie, which is just still remains one of those just head scratching moments in the narrative about Euron's last moments being like I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister and you're like Oh, oh that was important to you. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah it, right. It, it, it was this weird thing where it was like, is he supposed? To, is it supposed to be a commentary on how like characters in this universe just want to like live forever in the songs? But like, but this this version of Euron was never like that. Like it was like they invented a personality trait for him at the last second, which is what they kept doing for him throughout the entire show. And yeah, I, I agree. It, it it seems like they. They had that balance of wanting to, you know, they had their endpoints. They wanted to get ahead to them. They knew it to streamline some things, but wanted to keep some chunk of it around. And for me, you know, that I, I would just think I would be so laser focused on, okay, what is this contributing to Endgame? What, what does George have this in mind for? And are we doing that? No, well, then it's got to go. But, you know, I, but, I, but of course there's not, even with even when David and Dan, I'm sure, were at their most imperious, there's not just one voice. You know, Brian Cobbin was trying to keep a lot of this stuff around, and there were other writers and other ideas, and maybe they had plans that didn't work out, or they had budgets that didn't work out. So this is, I think, the Ironborn storyline in Game of Thrones is in part a reflection on how there is there is not just one writing process on a show. There are like a dozen different writing processes happening at once all the time. And sometimes it's just a mess. In the same way that we were saying about George and how George writes the Ironborn storyline, that his his marvelous trick here is that he makes it seem a lot more coherent than it actually is. And I think the show just didn't didn't quite get there. So I think that about wraps us up for this first part on The Forsaken. Again, 
first part of four because next mm-hmm. month we are going straight into the forsaken itself i don't think we've quite figured out how we're going to divide the the chapter itself but i'm sure there's plenty of interesting ways to do that because we'll think about it yeah yeah, I'm th- it's like, you know, dream sequence, non-dream sequence, like, you know, Euron stuff, non-Euron stuff, because Euron isn't all the way through the Forsaken. Maybe there's a good, like, halfway splitting point. I, it's been so long since I've read the chapter, I kind of don't remember the order of things exactly, so I'll have to go back through it, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss how best to structure it, folks. But yes, we'll be having two deep dives in the Forsaken over the next couple months, and then our, our final part of the series, we'll be talking about where it's all going, because of course, you know, one of the great things about the Forsaken is it seems to portend so many possible crazy things happening in the Winds of Winter, you know, not just for even Euron and Aeron, it's just for other connected characters connected to them, so that's what we'll be spending our fourth part on. So I hope you enjoy this this uh, first part, and it's only going to get more fun from here. Absolutely, and I'm very excited to do this to this full series and I'm very happy about this episode too so as always thank you so much for listening if you have the chance please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Podbean Spotify anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts you can follow us on Twitter at NotacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at NotacastASOIAF at gmail.com you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or PoorQuentin.com and you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter Brendan Beefish on Reddit and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com So, join us next month for part two of this series on The Forsaken, in which we start digging into the chapter itself, and man, am I excited to do that. I might even have a new favorite Winds of Winter sample chapter, because I just reread The Forsaken today, and maybe Theon is just a little, not not worse, but maybe The Forsaken is just a little bit better than Theon. Both great flavors that taste great together. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again so much for you guys for supporting us. It means a lot to us. And we will see you guys next week for a regular episode and next month for The Forsaken Part 2.